Welcome everybody, SF Live, episode number 34 already. I'm joined by Lee Courier today. He's the CEO of Next Gen Energy. Uh, Lee, they can't see you yet in a second. Uh, we'll get to them. We're doing a little intro. Just real quick reminding everybody, use hashtag AskNXE for questions. Make sure you follow us here on Twitter and on YouTube. We'll be uploading this video afterwards as well for your reviewing pleasure. We're also on, uh, I think we're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. So that's for your commute from the bathroom to the home office. Uh, make sure you you, tu you tune us in here as well. And uh, now I do have the pleasure to introduce Lee Courier. Lee, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? It's on the, on the show. It's a, it's a real privilege. No, fantastic. And uh, you are the first uranium company on the show. And uh, I have to admit, I'm more, my, my, my specialty is more gold, copper, silver, probably. And uranium is something I've neglected to look at. And we're going to talk about, uh, you know, I've been in the industry for 10 years and uranium has been in a bear market for nine of them, right? Yeah. So <laughs> there, there's a reason why I've neglected it, but it's coming back. And we're going to talk about that in a second. So it's great to have you on as the first uranium company, actually. And I figured might as well start with the best. And uh, I really want to get a quick shout out to Adelaide Capital for organizing this over the long weekend as well. So I'm glad you could make this happen on short notice as well. So thanks for that. Let's dive in. COVID-19 obviously is the idea of the whole SF Live thing originally. How is it infected or not infected, affected uh, next gen energy? Yeah, well, look, it, it, it's really affected the, the market in a more material sense than it has affected Next Gen Energy. We're on a development path and we're still on it uh, unabated uh, in, in a material sense. But the, the COVID has brought some transparency to an already uh, very stressed supply side of the uranium uh, uh, fuel cycle. Demand irrespective of all the changes, the plus and minuses that have occurred throughout, demand for nuclear energy is growing at one to two percent per annum. And in 2019, it was actually the world's historically uh, highest level of demand ever. Uh, so it has soaked up all of those, pre, those uh, Fukushima uh, consequences of some countries shutting down reactors, but a lot have opened up. And the, the growth of nuclear energy as a base load, clean air energy, uh, is now being very, very realised. But what we had was a build-up of inventory uh, back in the 2000s. Uh, well, really in the in the going into the early part of the 2010 uh, and, and throughout the last 10 years. And as you said, last night you've been in the industry for 10 years. Nine of years, nine of those years have been a bear market in uranium. But that's been stressing supply. And we saw the first signs of it back in 2016 with MacArthur River uh, talking about possibly closing down. And then they did close down. We've seen Langer Heinrich came off. And so that's uranium. You've got these periods of, uh, of uh, where it's a bearish, but the price of uranium hasn't incentivized production to actually hit when it's really needed. When I started in the industry in 2002, uh, uranium was at $7 a pound and it had been flat for about a five, seven year period. SARS came along in 2003, uh, 2003 and then we had a supply shock and the price went from $10 a pound in 20, 2004 to $140 a pound in 2008. And that was because of a stressed supply situation. The difference between now and back then well, the top five mines that were in production between 2004 and 2008 are no longer in production today. On top of that, production in terms of the cost of production has gone up substantially. So I think with COVID coming on board, it's actually brought some transparency to an already stressed supply state 
And we've seen the spot price go from $23 a pound up 45, 50% to about just under $34 a pound today in the space of about four to five weeks. And it shows you just how bare the cupboard is of available supplies and that that demand supply gap is growing. So it's huge news for the uranium market. No, I saw a press article actually that came out yesterday that the uranium supply has dipped by, or not just dipped, it dropped, it just disappeared, like 89% less supply in 2019 than uh, the year before. Yeah, yeah exactly. Right. And, and look, for the most bearish people out there on uranium, uh, if you just want to circle the recent price rise just related to COVID, well, the fact is just the COVID changes alone, if you want to ring fence them, this is going to be felt well into 2021. There's no doubt about it in terms of the spot price. But I can tell you, having been in the industry since 2002, I've never seen the supply side of uranium so stressed as it is today. And I think we're just on the cusp of a very sustained period and getting those magical returns that people experienced back in the in the 2000s. No, those were astronomical. It's fantastic. And there are not very many exploration companies or projects actually out there that could go into production as well. And uh, with all the mines closed, it'll, it'll take a while. And uh, maybe you have an opinion on that as well. Like how long will it actually take for MacArthur River or some of the other mines to come back online? Yeah, and that's the key point. It, no matter what the price is, physically, these mines just can't respond to production that quickly. Uh, MacArthur River, they've, they've quoted to get up to nameplate production if they started today. It would take approximately 30 months um, to get that up and running. That's, that's three to the, zero. Three zero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> three zero. And, and that, that's irrespective of the price of uranium. I think MacArthur River going into production yeah, that's obviously a cost issue as well in tied to the cost of production and the incentive price they need, which Chemico have been very open about. They need far higher long-term contracts in order to bring that back online. So there's not immediate production available to fill the gap. And that's what happened back in 2004 to 2008. And the result was the price really shoots way past that, that incentive price as utilities all try to go through the door at once to scramble for the available supplies. Yeah. Um, how, how has COVID affected the company itself? Like, how has it affected your work process? And I saw that you postponed some of the work programs you had planned working on a feasibility study. So let's drill down on those details a bit. Yeah, well, look, we're very advanced on all fronts and, and with respect to the feasibility study and the EIS. From a technical feasibility study, we've been putting together the information for over the last six years. Uh, it's been very consistent information. We put a lot of effort into our pre preliminary economic assessment, our PEA, which was released in August 2017. And you saw absolute consistency in the, the PFS released in November 2018. And you're going to see that consistency when we release the FS uh, later on in the back part of this year. COVID has basically, we've put a as we've suspended the desktop work. All of the technical uh, gathering, information gathering has already been done. And we're at that stage of compiling that into the feasibility study. In parallel, we've been continuing on all the environmental work. And so, and we're in the back end, like in the seventh year of that. And so the feasibility is going to be fed into the EIS, which we will lodge in the uh, uh, late Q1, early Q2, so the first half of 2021. And at that point in time, 
the regulators who have been very familiar with all of our work for the last six, seven years, will be in a position to have all the information in one formalised document. So the EIS is really a formalisation of all of that technical work that we've been doing over the last six to seven years. It's not the start of the permitting process. It's actually the formalisation of all of that work that's been going on for quite some time. Okay. So since you mentioned EIS and permitting, so you're planning to hand it in Q1, Q, early Q2, 2021. Um, what's the schedule after that? How long does it take to go through that process? Because we had quite a few questions and we got a lot of questions on Twitter. We'll get to those after our initial chat here. But uh, one of them was on the EIS and the permitting timeline. So for, for Arrow. Yeah. So maybe we can run well, through that. that. that so the, the timeline's dependent on the simplicity of the project and the fact that we're and whether we've met all the requirements we believe we will have met all the requirements in lodging that eis because we've been working with the regulators throughout this period and double checking to make sure that we're covering everything in terms of uh then the actual decision to proceed that is then in the government hands but we all are aware of the economic consequences of covid 19 and we all all are aware that government policy will flick very firmly onto economic policy. And so I think there's probably a, an economic political motivation to ensure that that review process of our permit is uh, is done expediently. And and I believe it will. We, we enjoy fantastic support from the federal government and the provincial government, but also the local communities. Uh, you know, our community programs are, have been well publicized and recognized as, as the best for a Canadian company anywhere in the world in 2019. Yeah, no, that, that, that's good feedback because especially with COVID, some of the more remote areas, they do have access getting getting to their projects even. And that's understandable because mm. First Nations don't don't want foreigners like foreigners like us, even coming from Vancouver, coming to their to a region, maybe bringing the virus with them. Right. So that's understandable. Yep. Um, let's drill down on the project economics real quick. And uh, you said it's going to be an economic driver. Can you run us through the metrics real quick? And I saw you used 50 US dollars back in 2018 as a baseline price. Um, we're trading at 34, roughly $34 right now per pound. Um, run us through that and your, your ideas behind that. And, uh, why do you think we'll get to 50 <laughs> or why, yeah. did you, why did you use 50? We talked about why we get to 50 probably like five minutes ago. So, yeah, we, we use 50 because it is uh, UXC's, you know, quoted long-term price. And we went to them and they suggested that's the price you should use. Um, and we also are aware that contracts are, writ are being written in the long-term contracts are being written in the $50 range today. Um, so I think that's a, an ultra conservative case. If we look at the contracting cycle back in 2004 to 2008, when the price went from 10 to $140 a pound, most of the contracting, long-term contracting was done between 60 and $70 a pound, which I think reflected the cost of production back at that time with a slight profit margin. I think this round, uh, because of the increase in costs of production over the, the last 15 years, that, that long-term contracting price is actually going to be a lot higher than that 60 to 70s when everyone looks back on it. Um, so I think $50 is, is very conservative. Uh, at $50, it's got an MPV of uh, after, tax, after tax of $3.6 billion. Um, it's going to generate uh, 3.9 billion in provincial royalties. And that's probably another economic factor. This project is the most actionable, highest revenue generating project in Saskatchewan um, that can be launched. It's going to create four and a half thousand direct and indirect jobs 
uh, during construction alone. So, uh, you know, it's an economic powerhouse. After tax IRR of 57% at $50. If you add uh, $10 um, to the price of uranium into your model, it basically adds another billion in after tax or another 10% internal rate of return. So it, it's an economic powerhouse. Okay, let me play devil's advocate, and that's probably where it shows my, my ignorance for uranium over the last nine years. Um, but why does the world need another arrow or need arrow? Well, I think it needs more than just one arrow. I think it needs three, three arrows in the middle part of this decade, uh, given that we see the demand curve growing and we see the supply side coming off. And that gap is, is building. And, and you know, there's always been that fear of available supplies on the market to fill that gap. But as I said, over four weeks, the price of uranium increased by 45%. It shows just how bare the cupboard is with respect to available supplies. So, yeah, I think the world needs more than one arrow um, at 25 million, uh, 25 million pounds a year. I think it needs three to four by the middle part of this decade. Good, good stuff. Sorry, like pardon my ignorance there, but I had to ask and I was wondering because we're in such a supply and demand like off balance right so i just had to ask. <laughs> um we're going to switch over to twitter because we got so many questions and we only have very limited time to go through it so i want to switch over because some guys are just way smarter than me on the uranium side um since we talked about eis and permitting first i, I got a message via a twitter dm here and the question is are you going to wait for federal permits which he suspects are two to three years away before you start sinking the shaft or are you going to start working on that or do you need like can you run us through that yeah, look, we're going to pursue the most optimal permitting path, and that, that can take many shapes and forms. But I, I, I'll say this, in terms of uh, the government's commitment to the, the project, I think it's very already evident. Uh, we are having, we are taking all the appropriate steps, and we, you know, our philosophy at NextGen is an elite standard in everything we do, and this permitting process is no different. I think at the end of it, everyone's going to walk away or the next gen's reputation is going to be, well, that was the best permitting process I've ever seen for a Canadian company. So whether the, the specific permit takes X number of months or years to, to achieve, you're going to see development of this project uh, commence in the very near future, but after successful lodgement of the impact uh, environmental impact statement. What, are the, what would be the first steps? What would they look like? Sorry, uh, you, you mentioned you, you'd start the first oh, steps. Oh, after. Right. Yeah, so you, you, you probably see some early surface work, such as an airstrip, that type of thing. Yeah. And, and look, the government knows, you know, we can't commit to those type of projects uh, unless we're very positive in terms of receiving that permit. But I think it's in everyone's interest that we uh, start development of this project as, as soon as practical. And uh, whilst even that permitting process may be ran in, in parallel to those things, but I can tell you we will not be set spending a cent unless we are certain, not confident, 100% certain we had that support. And I know we already have it. Okay. No, confidence is, uh, is a dangerous thing. So um, mm. I, I just switched over to Twitter and we got lots of questions. Lots of them are about permitting process. And uh, one question is from Peter. He's asking, what will NextGen do differently to expedite the permitting timeline versus historical builds? Also, what year do you, do you envision first uranium at, at Arrow? So, yeah, and, and it's, it's a good point, Peter. We have done it differently to our predecessors. predecessors. I permitted a mine in South Australia in, in uranium. I can tell you, far more complex. 
system and we're very successful in permitting a uranium mine in South Australia. I'll say Saskatchewan is uh, light years ahead in terms of their familiarity with uranium, their experience with uranium and the permitting process. What we don't press release, et cetera, is all of that work that we've done behind the scenes with the regulators since we made the discovery. And so I just want everyone to understand the permitting timeline doesn't start on filing the EIS. The EIS is the formalisation of all of that work we've done since discovery. So, you know, in the first half of next year when we've lodged the EIS, that is then in the government's hands to approve. And so we have done it differently. Uh, our processes behind the scenes in working with the regulators, our technical knowledge is very, very strong on this front. We've gone through it before. Um, I am very confident that uh, we'll be receiving uh, very clear guidance um, in terms of developing this project in a material way um, in the not too distant future. Yeah, no, fantastic. And uh, one one other question is like, how long is like? Because I don't think we put a timeline. I was like the EIS permitting timeline. Like you handed the document. What's what's the government mandated like process? Is there a certain set timelines they have to respond? Thirty days with their first feedback. Sixty days for the second part. I don't know. Is there something like that? Yeah. Yeah, there, there, there is a mandate, uh, but it, but it can stop and start depending on the quality of your EIS submission and whether any new information comes up. Now, uh, I'll say this: we had a, we've already had a 30-day period. Uh, when you lodge your project description, which we did back in April of 2019, it got accepted very, very quickly, which shows how much work and preparation we'd put into that. There was a 30-day public comment period. There was only four. Uh, uh, questions uh, uh, that were issued and all very supportive of the project. So whilst I can't be definitive on the timeline, what I can give colour around is that uh, there's uh, from all camps, uh, all stakeholders, very strong commitment towards this project. And I'll say that it's based purely on our stewardship of the environmental aspects uh, ever since we made the discovery our communication with local communities, the provincial government, the federal government, everyone is very, very well aware of this project and all of its um, uh, impacts and, and the positive impacts of that. So whilst I can't be definitive on the timeline, um, I can be very certain in telling everyone this project is under development and we're just in that, you know, that permitting phase. I'm trying to give some colour behind the background. It's not as black and white as you don't start this until you've got X permit. We are been, we've been in permitting since we discovered the project because we knew with the very first hole, we were onto a major project. Well, no, I think that's a perfect answer for it. And it's tough to say, okay, March 31st, 2021, we got our permit. That just doesn't work that way. So um, oh. another question that, that came in and it's from Netsum. It's following recent deal with Queens Road Capital for 30 million US and the continued support from CEF over the last three, four years. Uh, giving or let, let's pretend that you're intending to build Aero yourselves, and if so, uh, do you feel that CEF and Queens Road will be there to provide for their capital? Yeah, and and uh, well, we 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 are we approach every day on the basis we're going to be the ones reclamating the mine. We have the technical expertise on board. That's that's very very clear, uh, and, and the capability to do it. The other aspect of that is you need the finance. Uh, Lee Kaohsiung, CEF, Queens Road Capital, uh, you know, they are some of the premier 
investors in the space. Um, it's a very small uh, investment in, in the CEF context, given their overall portfolio, and and uh, they're obviously there for uh, far larger purposes. But there's no commitment. Um, you know, we are looking at all project uh, financing avenues, and we will take the most optimal one. But their support is highly valued. Um, I think that it speaks for itself. And you know, their, their entry price was three dollars thirty. We're currently trading at about a dollar eighty. I can tell you, they're not going anywhere. Um, and you've seen QRC, which is uh, you know Warren Gilman used to run CEF. He's now QRC. QRC is backed by four Australian billionaires. One of which is is Jack Cowan, highly successful Canadian living in Australia. Uh, and then you've got Andrew Forrest, who runs FMG, a $42 billion iron ore producer who's got a magnificent commitment to community initiatives. And he sees what we're doing here in in uh, in Canada as mirroring his his efforts in, in Western Australia. And uh, so, we, you know, we have a, a very strong investor supporter base. And I think that's a reflection of our quality of work, the quality of the asset and the fundamentals of uranium. Uh, going forward. No, fantastic. Okay. Um, a follow-up question from my end. Like you got 44 million US or Canadian? Canadian. Canadian. <laughs> right now in the bank. How much do you need to get to that uh, end of permitting phase? Like and when you say, okay, we got the permit in hand, let's start, uh, let, let's start work on this. Yeah. So the 44 million was at the end of Q1. We're at about 37 million at the moment. Um, we have fully with with that 37 so it's excluding the recent qrc investment i want to be clear there that'll take us up to about 75 million oh, fantastic. but let's just look at the 37 million at the moment we are fully funded with 37 million to finalize the feasibility study and the eis now any money on top of that is you know we could spend in early surface works uh with respect to the project which would then come off that capex figure with respect to construction so uh we are well funded and and i think we've demonstrated our ability to raise additional capital uh and financing is is clearly evident yeah um ask i think i think her, uh, there we got a question about hurricane and that's iso energy's project if i'm mistaken Right. Yes. And and the question is, if Hurricane produces a commercial scale resource estimate, what scenarios has uh, or has NextGen considered given their stake in the asset? And uh, yep. he gives so, examples of joint venture development or something like that, or just a sale. Yeah. So ISO for the for the viewers who may not be familiar, uh, when NextGen started, we had properties in the eastern part of the basin and the western part of the basin. Arrow's in the western part of the basin, so we split off Arrow with its own management team led by Craig Parry. Um, uh, to to focus on those eastern uh, portfolio, and he and his team uh, have done a wonderful job. And uh, and we've as a group we've made our second discovery in uranium, uh, which is quite remarkable given how how tough these things are to find. And Hurricane is shaping up to be a very very interesting deposit. Um, uh, we are very excited about it, and so we are covering both sides of the basin as as a group. Development scenarios, well, the, the east, there's available mills. There's there's no doubt about it. How it gets developed, time will tell. But, um, you know, we're in a very nice position having, you know, over 50% interest in ISO and and uh, being on both sides of the basin like that. So, uh, yeah, real credit to Craig and his team and the group 
Um, you know, we, we're getting the reputation of uh, not only the technical ability to discover these projects and to permit them, but also the, the financial ability and the highly effective use of capital. I can tell you at NextGen, for every dollar that we've put into the ground and, and in development, uh, uh, there's been $13 in exploration development for only every $1 of GNA. Now, I know, you know, ISO's got the same DNA and I know, you know, we lead the pack in terms of that discipline. And, uh, you know, that's what investors get with the group of companies NextGen and ISO. Oh, fantastic. And now, now I do have a question, like, do you, do you run a monopoly in this, uh, in Saskatchewan there in the Athabasca Basin? Or like, how is the activity <laughs> shaping up now? Let's give us a bit more of a, to sort of end this here, because we're running hitting our time limit. But I'm just quite curious with ISO Energy and, and yourselves, is there even room for anybody else? Is there more activity? Do you see an uptick in activity now? Yeah, no, there's room for the plenty. Like we, we there's Fission uh, as well, who are developing a project in the western part of the basin as well. Uh, we got Denison also uh, permitting a project in the eastern side of the basin with their their ISL project um, in in Wheeler River. Um, what I said earlier is that the world needs two to three arrows um, uh, by the middle part of this decade. There's room for everyone. And uh, I, I think the development in the Athabasca Basin is very exciting and uh, it will be the go-to attention, uh, I believe, uh, in a rising uranium market because you can't substitute grade. Grade is king. The Athabasca averages 100 times the world's average grade of other deposits. And you've got a phenomenal permitting uh, and production environment with the Saskatchewan government. So I think that's where investors' dollars are going to be centred, and uh, and uh, that's why we invested there in the first place. No, fantastic. And to, to wrap this up, to put a bow around all of this, give us a, just a, just an update or an, an outlook for the next three six months. What can investors expect from Next Gen Energy? What's the news flow going to look like? Yeah, you'll see. Uh, um, uh, results come out from the uh, end of our 2019 drilling campaign. We're going to get the feasibility study uh, released in the back half of this year. That uh, obviously is dependent on COVID and, and our consultants being able to return to their normal work environment. There's ongoing environmental work and the EIS preparation uh, as well. You saw last week we had the QRC financing. On top of that, we had the appointment of Tony George, a proven uh, mine builder on time and budget with uh, projects right around the world, including northern Canada. Uh, we spent 12 months looking for Tony and we're, we're very pleased that he joined the company. And uh, and uh, as I said, at, well, at NextGen, you know, we live and breathe this and um, we are a highly committed team and uh, and set an elite standard in everything we do. So uh, Tony's a huge addition to the team and, and look, you're going to see more appointments along the track as well. So uh, it's like uh, serious about building it. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. So cool. Um, Lee, thank you so much. Everybody else. Lee has done a webinar with Adelaide Capital. Just, uh, just about a week ago, I think, with way more detail about the project. This is more of an interactive format. We don't want to bore you with running through corporate presentations. That's what webinars are for. Uh, I, I, I watched part of it earlier in preparation for this, but I think it summarizes perfectly what you guys are doing. So I'll, I'll link to it in the description somewhere on YouTube or below here on Twitter. I'll make sure to link to it. Uh, Lee, thanks for joining us. Please stay safe. Thank you. And uh, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Everybody else, Absolutely. thanks again also for your questions. 
Uh, follow us here on Twitter. Follow us on YouTube. Make sure to subscribe. Give us, give us a thumbs up just to show us that you like the content. We'll keep producing it. So thank you so much.